This is the Birth, Baby, and Life podcast with Kristen Burgess, and we're removing the mystery in episode number 109. Welcome to the Birth, Baby, and Life podcast, the tips, tools, and straight talk you want for pregnancy, childbirth, and bringing up baby. And now your host, Kristen Burgess. Hi, this is Kristen from naturalbirthandbabycare.com. This week, we are going to talk about complications and handling complications, specifically with home birth, but a lot of these things are applicable no matter where you're giving birth, so I think that you'll benefit from them. Many of these things are things that moms and dads really fear or worry about, or they have some notion that maybe something could go wrong. I think this is especially true with daddies. They have this notion that something could go wrong, so we need to make sure that we're prepared. And I don't know what could go wrong, but I want you to be safe in the hospital in case it does. And and it's not it's not really clearly defined. I think for moms, it's often more clearly defined. Like, for instance, one thing that a lot of moms tend to worry about is hemorrhage. I'm worried about bleeding. Uh, but regardless of whether you feel like you have a concern that's clearly defined or not clearly defined, there are often worries about birth. And I wanted to talk about how issues are handled specifically with home birth, because a lot of people say, well, I wouldn't do a home birth because it's just so dangerous and something could go wrong. And the reality is, is that uh, birth usually works. First of all, birth was designed to work. Sure, we can think about many, many, many mothers and babies who have been lost, especially in the past due to malnutrition or poor sanitation. But even today, the the loss of mothers and babies is still disturbing. Sometimes it can't be helped. Sometimes it doesn't matter where the mom would have birthed. And actually, um, I think a lot of mothers and babies uh, tend to be lost in hospitals, and that's just kind of quieted or hush-hushed and just not talked about so much. Of course, we know because home births statistically um, make up far fewer of the births, we are going to see more losses in a hospital just because there are more mothers and babies. But even when you look at the percentages, um, they're kind of scary. And I think that it's also important to remember that the bottom line is not always a live mother and a live baby. Of course, that's what we really want. So I want to tread softly when I say this. But if going through a hospital birth, um, a mother or a child has been so horribly damaged that their quality of life is very poor, was the risk of the interventions and things that um, that that child or that mother were subjected to worth it? And if that mother and child had labored and, and birthed or been born at home, Would we have those things? And sometimes I think the answer is we would not. We would have had a whole mother and baby. And we can look at many things such as blachial plexus injuries, things that tend to happen when there's a lot of rushing, somebody's in a hurry and starts pulling when they shouldn't pull. All you have to do is look through many, many lawsuits. In fact, if you're worried about particular interventions, you can often find videos on YouTube uh, that have been done by lawyers, that have been commissioned by lawyers to kind of illustrate where somebody did something they shouldn't have done and it caused damage, usually to the baby, sometimes to the mom. Basically, I guess what I want to challenge you with is that it's not so black and white. And especially, I put out this challenge to you dads because this is something I've talked about a lot. And I can link to many articles that I've written in the show notes. So definitely check the show notes for this. But technology does not always equal safety. I can tell you my deep, dark secret that's perhaps not so secret is that I am a huge tech geek. I am like the geekiest of the geeky. I love looking at the new technology that comes out. I love looking at the new computers, the new phones, the new tablets. Um, I love plinking around on the command line in a Linux operating system. I am definitely a geek at heart. But when it comes to birthing my babies, I definitely feel like, for the most part, the less technology, the better. Technology does not always equal safety. If you meditate on nothing else for this episode, please meditate on that and what that means. 
Again, I will link to tons of articles um, in in the show notes for this episode because there's just so many things we could touch on. We could talk about how technology and procedures interfere with the hormonal flow of labor. We could talk about how they completely disrupt the pattern of labor. We could just we could cover so many things and look at. There's a term. It's been around for many years. So you've probably heard it: the cascade of interventions, and that's true. That's not just something made up by quote-unquote natural birth fanatics or whatever. Um, I honestly feel like natural birth should be the default for most women, and it should be empowering. And if something's needed, then fine, good, let's use that. But when we get away, and I talked about this in previous podcast episodes, when we get away from this choice rhetoric um, where natural birth is a choice, a cesarean section is a choice, when we when we move away from that rhetoric, I think we will create a lot more freedom for women because then, first of all, we won't be accusing women of being natural birth fanatics just because they believe in honoring the design, the sequence, the blueprint that nature or God or whomever you want to blame or credit has put in place for the design of birth. Um, but there, you know... the. the they won't talk about people being fanatical for wanting to stick to that. And we also won't be pointing fingers at women who had a cesarean or something because, oh, she should have chosen a natural birth because we'll realize that she actually needed that. And I talked about that at length um, in another podcast. And I can link, again, I'll link to all these articles in this podcast because this topic is something I feel especially passionate about, obviously. But, But again, I guess... I want to preface this entire episode with the fact that I really, what I really want to challenge you with is not just considering what if big bad X happens, but what overall creates the safest environment for birth. And maybe that is not a technological environment. Again, I always give a caveat for some women, it may be, if you're dealing with something like, for example, type 1 diabetes or congenital heart defect and you need to birth your baby, then birthing with a maternal fetal medicine specialist or a perinatologist in the hospital is probably your best bet. And like, especially for those of you ladies who, for example, have that congenital heart defect, your specialist is going to tell you, I want to help you have a vaginal birth because that's much safer for you than a cesarean. And that's one thing you'll often find with perinatologists is that they're very supportive of, if at all possible, helping the moms in their care have a vaginal birth or even a natural birth. Now they want her to do it in a controlled environment because you're dealing with pre-existing medical conditions, but they're very supportive, which I find pretty interesting, actually. Um, But if you're not dealing with one of those pre-existing conditions, then I think that having a nice, normal birth, even at home, is good for you. And many of you um, will often say, well, I had X, Y, and Z complications. And that's true, but I also challenge you to look at, what if I could have prevented that? So I had a friend who had a daughter who had intrauterine growth retardation. And then she went on to have her next two babies at home because she switched to the care of a midwife and she learned a lot about how to have a healthy pregnancy and grow a healthy baby. And I've always appreciated her story uh, because she didn't say, okay, this is inevitable. All my kids are going to have IUGR. She said, what can I do? And again, I don't want to cause guilt for anybody who had a complication that really couldn't be helped. Sometimes that happens. But I also want to challenge you to be conscious, to be aware, to think about it. If you want a lot more on how to prevent complications, how to work with birth, how to have a natural birth, my Mama Baby Birthing class series is definitely what you're going to want to take a look at. That's mamababybirthing.com, M-A-M-A, babybirthing.com. It's an online series, so you can go through the classes, the videos, the audios, the handouts, all at your own pace, but we also have a weekly live session where you can come and ask questions or if you are shy or you need to send them to me beforehand, you can email me questions so I can talk to you about your specific situation, your specific pregnancy history, your specific concerns. That's actually one of the highlights of my week. So that's there for you. Like if you listen to this podcast episode and you say, yeah, Kristen, but what about my situation? then Mama Baby Birthing Classes and that personal interaction, I think are going to really be helpful to you. So check out mamababybirthing.com, M-A-M-A, babybirthing.com. With that, let's jump in to 
handling home birth complications. I know that that was kind of a long preamble, but I feel like when we talk about a subject like this that is frankly a hot topic, a touchy subject, there needs to be some sort of preamble for it. So before we dig into complications that can be handled, let's talk about some that are true emergencies, and then we'll talk about some that that can possibly be handled at home. So one true emergency is a cord prolapse, which means that the cord comes down before the baby's head. This is a true emergency and immediate transport needs to happen. So mom would assume a kneaded chest position with her bum in the air, wrap the cord in a warm, wet towel loosely, and um, if if the cord isn't present with the hand or foot, and mom's pushing, then she can push hard to try and get her baby right away. But otherwise, try and keep baby's head away from the cord. Mom in the kneaded chest position, butt in the air. And um, and go to the nearest hospital. Just get in the car and drive. It's usually faster than waiting even on an ambulance. Um, somebody can be calling the hospital to have them ready. That one is a situation where you're going to call the hospital and tell them, please prep for an emergency cesarean. Because that is when an emergency cesarean is warranted. Another true uh, emergency, well, this one's not as much of an emergency, but a cesarean is truly warranted, is a transverse baby, which means that the hand is present and there seems to be no sign of the head. And a skilled midwife will probably be able to palpate and she can feel that the baby's in a transverse position and what's going on there is that the baby is just not going to come out because of the way that the baby's presented. The hand is down and the baby's body just can't come out. So that would be a, an indication to transport. Another reason to transport is placenta abruption, which is when the placenta separates from the wall of the uterus before the baby is born. Um, often signs of a placental abruption are fresh, really really bright blood gushing out uh, in the first stage of labor. Um, Oftentimes the mom feels pain, not like normal quote-unquote labor pains, but like um, wrenching, tearing, sudden sharp pain. Um, And then babies, you're not able to hear baby's heart rate. Mom might be showing signs of shock from the bleeding. Again, that is a true emergency and an immediate transport is needed. Um, And then fetal distress. This one's a little bit of a harder one. Um, to say should we transport or not. But if the baby's heart rate is very low, so less than about 110 or very high, over 180, and that's occurring between contractions, then that's a worrisome sign. Or if the baby's, it's sometimes normal for the, it is normal for the baby's heart rate to dip in contractions because of cord compression when the uterus is really firm um, or the cord and the head might be close to each other and so there's a little bit of compression Um, And so the baby's heart rate can dip with the contraction, but then once it's over, it comes back up. So if the baby's heart rate does not seem to be recovering, then that could be a sign of uh, a fetal distress. Now, that's not an immediate transport. Often switching positions for the mom can help. So with my first labor and birth with my baby, I was was kind of um, laboring on my side and my midwife noted that my baby's heart rate didn't seem to be doing great so she asked me to get up on hands and knees and her heart rate recovered immediately and she did really well was born with a nice lusty cry and everything so sometimes it's just the way that you're situated and moving can help baby move that's one of the things i talk about in mama baby birthing classes is that sometimes the baby really needs to get into a different position. And it doesn't always have something to do with fetal heart tones. Babies are very active during your birthing time. They actually are moving and rotating and doing a lot. You can't see any of that. You often feel like you're the only one doing the work, but you are actually working with your baby. And so sometimes when things seem stagnant for any reason, a position change can make a big difference. And the same can be true for this fetal heart tone thing. Um, If pushing is happening and the baby seems to be having a harder time with pushing, then usually you just want to get the baby out really quickly, sometimes lying on the left side to push, which, uh, which helps the uterus fall away from mom's major arteries and things can be helpful. But if the fetal heart rate doesn't recover or if the baby is not born very quickly, then it's good to transfer. And if the water breaks and the baby's heart rate drops and it doesn't recover very quickly, 
that could possibly be a cord prolapse. So again, there's a transfer there. Another reason to transfer is shock. And we spoke about this with possible placenta abruption. Um, so signs of shock for a mom would be she seems she breaks out in a cold sweat. Her skin gets very pale. If you've ever seen somebody get faint um, where they turn that green color, maybe after they cut themselves or something, that kind of pale, clammy look. Mom getting chills or shaking. Um, her pulse seems weak or thready, so it doesn't seem very steady. Uh, blood pressure seems to seems to drop or the mom seems a little bit she seems very restless very anxious kind of out of it those are all signs of shock um sometimes this can be dealt with safely at home so elevating the mom's legs getting her some quick sugar quick energy addressing bleeding can be very helpful if those things don't seem to be helping then it's time to transfer and then there are also reasons why you might uh, transfer baby after birth too. And we'll talk about those things in a minute. So let's talk now. Those are the those are reasons that you might consider transport or immediate transport. And for some of them, um, like a core prolapse, immediate transport, transverse baby, uh, your baby might be doing very well, but you would transport because the baby is just not going to come out. And yes, sometimes that happens. Okay, so let's talk about some other issues that might come up with a home birth. And before we talk about that, I already hinted at this in my little preamble prelude thing. But many, 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 many times what you do in pregnancy can prevent complications during birth. And again, I do not tell this or say this to create guilt for any of you who may have had a complication in birth. But I say this to give power to you as a birthing woman or a woman who's preparing for birth or a woman who's preparing or considering a pregnancy, preparing for or considering a pregnancy. Again, this is to give you information so that you can make different choices. It's like Maya Angelou said, I quote this constantly on Mama Baby Birthing and I've probably quoted it on the podcast before. She said something along, along the lines of, um, you know, I did what I did then because I had what I knew then, and now that I know better, I do better. And so that's where we're coming from with this. Please don't immerse yourself in guilt, but do give kind of a, a critical look back and ask yourself questions if you're wondering, could anything have prevented that? So again, um, like for instance, one of the things that's really important during pregnancy is good nutrition so that the blood volume expands. Again, we aren't going to get way off on that rabbit trail, but basically pregnancy impacts every major system in your body, your respiratory system, circulatory system, urinary system, endocrine system, everything. And when you are properly nourished, your blood supply expands. And basically that is the conduit through which you nourish, care for, and sustain all of those systems. So a mom who eats well, A, has two extra quarts of blood on board, which makes anything dealing with bleeding a little bit less ominous. Um, B, she's getting optimal nutrition to the placenta and thus to the baby and also to the uterus. I was blessed to assist at a birth just last week, which is actually why this podcast episode is a little bit late. Um, but I was blessed to assist at that birth and the placenta was like so incredibly healthy. It was just, I mean, I'm not one who thinks that placentas are terribly beautiful, though I do find them intriguing, but this placenta was beautiful. It was just so healthy. Um, and, and that's a mom who was eating really well, who was well-nourished. And of course, a well-nourished uterus is going to work effectively to have an effective birthing. A mom who is well-nourished has the stamina to make her way through a birthing, no matter how uh, short and intense it may be or long it may be. A mom has what she needs. And then also in the postpartum period, a mom with a healthy uterus who has healthy energy, healthy reserves, healthy stores is far less likely to bleed, which again is the specter that many, many modern women are worried about in their birthing time. So that's just one example. But I I mean, healthy pregnancy diet goes so far, so long, good preparation for birthing, understanding all of these things, taking all this head knowledge and making it part of your birthing instincts. That's one of the things I talk about in Mama Baby Birthing goes a long way towards making complications far less likely. 
understanding the hormonal flow of labor, understanding that you should stay at home for as long as possible, that you should rest, or in the case of a home birth, that you should let things get well underway and not not invite the entire extended family over kind of thing. Those are all things that when you understand, you make the risk of complications much less. So I believe that advanced preparation really does make a big difference. Uh, Also, sometimes you may find something in the prenatal period that makes you decide we're not going to have a home birth. The, the, The words that we use for that are often risking out of a home birth, but sometimes you may discover something that really does make you think, I would be more comfortable birthing at the hospital because I've got this going on. So that's something else that happens in the prenatal period in addition to preventative care, which is desperately important during pregnancy. And even you ladies who aren't pregnant, um, getting healthy in this preconception period is very beneficial and then kicking into that good pregnancy nutrition. And like I said, mama baby birthing, I give personal answers. I have moms who have so many challenges, so many different and varied challenges and I'm happy to cover all of those because I believe it's possible for most women to have a healthy pregnancy so think these things through and then there may be things that come up that make you decide no I feel like we would be safer here and then you can prepare Um, there's a mom in my classes right now who's got um, cholestasis and so she's preparing for a hospital birth and how can I make the best of the situation and if this happens for instance an early induction is sometimes advised then how can I make the best of it what can I do to prepare and that's empowering that's where we should be coming from okay so a stalled labor is a complication that that often occurs um, or that we think occurs during a home birth and I honestly think that a stalled labor is far less likely to occur with a mom who is birthing at home because she feels much more able to get up and move around. There's just not the pressure at the hospital. You're not stuck in the bed with fetal monitors on you. You're not scared out of your wits. You're not feeling uncomfortable. You're not being watched by 50 set of eyes. It's just less likely to happen, but it can happen. So often what What helps a stalled labor is to get active, to get up and get moving. Um, Oftentimes, baby, like I said, baby's very active during birthing, and baby needs to do what he or she needs to do. Your baby needs to rotate, your baby needs to move, your baby needs to get into position. And it's good to think about these things, to remember these things, um, and to be active during your birthing time. So a lot of women have a desire kind of to spiral their hips, to be on a birthing stool or leaning up against a counter or something and spiraling their hips, or rocking and swaying, being on hands and knees, rocking and swaying. Those are often positions that your body is telling you to be in because they help you work with your baby. Another thing that might be helpful for a stalled labor is eating or drinking. This is something that moms in the hospital often don't get the luxury of doing, believe it or not. But sometimes, um, you know, birthing is hard work. And when we think about endurance events for athletes, we think about them having their Gatorade or their energy pouches or whatever it is that they have at particular points on the course or in the race. You know, they're they're not expected to, to keep going because we know that an athlete will hit the wall so to speak, if they aren't refueling. And birthing takes a lot of energy, and it's possible for a birthing mom to hit the wall. So having some energy in there is good. And it could be something like a Gatorade, an electrolyte drink, an emergency. It could be something like a lot of midwives, like a spoonful of honey, um... Often it's something easy because sometimes in birthing things do come back up. But if you're feeling like, especially if you've got a longer labor, plan to eat and drink, plan to have something, some yogurt with some fruit, or even I've heard, um, I think it was Gloria LeMay who said this, who is a wonderful midwife, and I've been privileged to have her as one of my instructors. She talks about having a Mountain Dew. Um, You know, get some Mountain Dew into this mom. And obviously, you know, when we're thinking from a crunchy perspective, that's not what we would ideally think. But the point is, is get her some quick energy. And if that needs to come in the form of a soft drink, well, fine, let's do that. Let's just get some energy to the mom, some sugar to the uterus, some glucose to the muscles, to the uterus, which is a muscle. Um, So those are things that can hold labor up as those positions need to get in position, help baby move, need to get mom more energy. Sometimes, um, Sometimes women have mental blocks, 
So sometimes there's something going on in your mind or in the back of your mind and your midwife may be able to help you with this. So she can advise you about position changes or encourage you to eat something. She can also suggest that maybe there's a mental block going on. Maybe there's something, maybe you're worried about something or fearful about something. Um, if you look in Ina May's book, Spiritual Midwifery, which um, I like for so many reasons, it's, it's kind of dated and the midwives feel a little hands-on, maybe a lot hands-on sometimes. But still the essence of those stories is, uh, is so powerful. And one of the things that they talk about in some of the stories is the moms having mental blocks about things. And I think it's it's powerful to read about that, to understand and acknowledge that. I like what the Russian midwives say in the DVD, Birth Into Being, um, which is that you do the work during pregnancy so that when you are birthing, the only thing left to do, so to speak, um, is to birth. But, you know, it's just... Sometimes things do come up that you didn't expect. And if you think if there's a fear or a worry or a concern that keeps going on and on in your mind, it's good to speak of that. It's good to bring that up. It's good to cover that because that can be helpful to you in um, in f- figuring out why, are thing- why do things seem to be quote unquote stalling. So obviously there those are a lot of things that can be going on in a birthing time and things to consider but i really feel like a stall is um is not usually a stall there's usually something else going on and we can do something to address it now sometimes it is good just to rest sometimes your body knows it needs a rest sometimes your baby needs time to do what he or she needs to do And especially earlier on in your birthing time, maybe just taking a rest and honoring that is good. And then get up and get active for a little bit so that you can save your stamina for, um, you know, so to speak. So those are all some things to think about. Another problem that people often worry about is the cord around the neck. And... Honestly, this is almost never a problem. I I think that the cord around the neck is something that um, doctors and of old have used to say, oh, I saved your baby. Look, the cord was around the neck. And in reality, it's almost never a problem. Firstly, the cord is generally pretty loose. Secondly, um, the cord is, it's uh, it's got two arteries and a vein in it. And those vessels are surrounded by not only the sheath of the cord, but also a substance inside of there called Wharton's jelly. And the Wharton's jelly is very, very, um, very slippery, so to speak. And also it creates rigidity in the cord so that the cord is, I mean, um, it's hard to compress Now, again, when we're talking about a cord prolapse, when the cord is dropped down and the baby's head is pinching the cord, that's a lot of pressure. But actually, the cord around the baby's neck, and this is something that um, Marin from Indie Birth said in one of their Taking Back Birth podcasts, Um, and I might see if I can find the episode. I'm not sure if there was like a particular episode about that, but I'll take a look back and see if I can find it to link it to you. But I love what she said, which is that really, maybe the cord around the neck is an adaptation of a smart baby. Because if the cord is around the neck, it's far less likely to prolapse. So that baby was actually super smart to store their cord conveniently around their neck. Another thing, this is something that I had the privilege of seeing just a couple of weeks ago at a birth, which was a baby's cord that had two true knots in it. So oftentimes there's kind of a kink that looks like a knot, but it's not a true knot. Sometimes you'll see a baby with one, but the the supervising midwife that I'm assisting with at births has seen over 800 births at this point in her career. And this is the first time she has ever seen a cord that had two true knots. And it was really interesting to see. Once the baby had been born, the placenta had been born, and we were going back to examine the placenta and to look at the cord, The knots looked somewhat tight. Now, actually, one of the things that happened was as this mom stepped out of the birth tub, her placenta just kind of fell, which probably pulled those knots a little bit tight um, as it, you know, as it fell. But 
Also, when when she was in the birthing tub, because she birthed in a tub, we could see that the knots were quite loose. So though they looked tight, they really weren't. And actually, even afterwards, when we were looking at it, you could take the knots and slip them up and down the cord, even though a lot the Wharton's jelly starts to break down pretty much immediately at birth. But even with it starting to break down, you could still slide those knots up and down. And that just, I give that as an example um, of the resiliency of the cord, of the rigidity of the Wharton's jelly in the cord, and just everything that that does to help um, to help have safety mechanisms. And when the cord is around the baby's neck, that Wharton's jelly um, and that rigidity that it creates, the cushion that the jelly creates over the arteries and the vein, is just very protective of the baby. And uh, and I think sometimes people worry, okay, the cord is cutting off the baby's oxygen supply, but remember the cord is the baby's oxygen supply in the womb. It's not like it's a noose around the baby's neck. And I honestly think that's why so many people have trouble with it is because it brings up visions of nooses. But generally, you just unwind the cord from around the baby's neck and everything is fine. Um, If it does seem to be really tight, of course it could be clamped and cut right away. But that's almost never necessary. Again, it can just be unwound. Sometimes babies can be kind of born. They slip through the cord um, and kind of somersault out through the cord. And all is fine. So again, it's generally just a non-issue. But it is something that many people worry about. So another thing that people worry about is what if the baby gets stuck? And the technical term for this is shoulder dystocia. And one of the interesting things that we find um, in medical literature is that the incidence of shoulder dystocia seems to be rising, and it has risen kind of in tandem with particular obstetric interventions. So one thing that's important to understand when we think about um, a shoulder dystocia or a stuck baby is that it's normal for the baby's head to be born. And then for there to be a pause while something called restitution happens. And if you open even any obstetrics textbook, you can read about the mechanisms of labor, or sometimes they're called the cardinal movements of labor, and restitution is included in there. So the baby's head is born, and when the baby's head is born, it's actually as if the baby is kind of looking to the side. And what happens with restitution is that the head turns so that the baby's bot, the baby's head is again looking forward. And that's, that just happens because that's the way that the baby navigates down through your pelvis. What happens uh, today a lot of times is, and I don't understand this because like I said, you can look in an obstetrics textbook. Like I'm looking at my bookshelf and I have the current edition of uh, Oxhorn and Foote's Human Labor and Birth on my bookshelf, which is a primary obstetric textbook. And it it clearly describes, clearly illustrates, in fact, beautiful illustrations, better than in my midwifery textbooks, the mechanisms of labor. But for whatever reason, a lot of doctors don't want to wait on restitution now. So they're encouraging the mom to continue pushing and pushing and pushing or even getting their hands in there, which is dangerous. Um, And what happens is the baby's shoulders can become impacted because restitution hasn't happened. The baby's body just has not had time to do what it needs to do. So this this can actually be called iatrogenic shoulder dystocia, which is caused by doctors. Another thing is that sometimes doctors label that normal pause where we wait for restitution and then the next contraction. Now, not all babies wait a contraction, ladies. Not all babies do. I've had some babies that their head was born and they just rocketed it out. And I've had some babies where their head was born and then I had to wait. And that's either one of those is a variation of normal. But restitution is normal. Now, if you see no restitution, there may be some concern. But again, um, a lot of doctors will say, oh, there seemed to be a dystocia because there was a delay, but that's not actually true. So usually a contraction or two is required. Now, some things that can that can cause us to be concerned is that if after a contraction or two, the baby's body hasn't been born, then we could be concerned. Or um, if the head's out, and the, this is kind of called turtling, is what it's often called in midwifery and obstetric circles, is the baby's head comes out and then it seems to kind of go back in, kind of as if a turtle had poked its head out and then pulled it back in and you can see part of the head. That could be a sign that the shoulders are hung up. So usually the first thing that um, that midwives will try is is they will get the mom to turn over. So put mom on hands and knees if she's not on hands and knees 
um, or get her into runner's position, which is actually a great position just kind of for birthing. But you do it even in a more exaggerated if you're worried about this, which is where the mom is up on one knee and one leg is kicked back as if she were standing ready to take off for a run. So if you picture a runner on the blocks getting ready to run, that's kind of in runner's pose. Or if you picture a runner who's got one knee up and then the other leg extended back getting ready to take off for a run, that's runner's pose. And that those two positions tend to work very, very, very well um, to get a baby out. Again, oftentimes a position change can really help a baby who's having a hard time getting out. So sometimes standing up will help. But if we're worried about a shoulder dystocia, usually uh, that runner's position is what's used. If that doesn't work, then your midwife will step in and she'll often put a finger in and hook the finger under the baby's lower arm. So that means the arm that's closest to your tailbone and rotate that arm up towards the baby's face and out. And that often brings the baby out completely. Sometimes she or a helper usually will apply a little bit of pressure above the pubic bone. That's called super pubic pressure. And that helps kind of just push that little elbow that might be hung up on the pubic bone out and down. Um, so you're not really pulling on the baby. What you're doing more is, or what the midwife would be doing is hooking her finger under um, and just helping to bring the baby's arm out just to, to, to bring baby out. You would never pull on the head. You'd never try and spin the baby's head. That could cause a brachial plexus injury um, or, or other unpleasant things. One of the things I did, I went to a midwifery workshop a few months ago now, and Ruth Goldberg, who is a certified nurse midwife in Flagstaff, um, Arizona, was teaching about shoulder dystocia, and she went through the procedure for shoulder dystocia, and she said that at their hospital in Flagstaff, they have never had a shoulder dystocia that they were not able to resolve by going through these steps. Um, and they have all midwives have a particular protocol that she go that they go through, and hers was a protocol that also I think came from Gail Tully of Spinning Babies is one of the places where they learn this. So again, this um, this protocol is successful, and it's basically what I just told you. It's a little bit you know the the midwife who's training in it um, knows a little bit more about the details of it. But what I've just told you is a good summary. And again, like Ruth said. They have never had this not work to resolve a shoulder dystocia. And that's something that can be done at home. And a midwife who's watching and knows what's going on is going to know when she needs to say, okay, let's take action. Let's really get this baby out. Another thing that families worry about is a breech baby. And this is one where I think this is really up to you. So if you know prenatally that your baby is breech, you may or may not opt for a hospital birth. If you opt for a hospital birth, the reality is in today's birthing climate, you are generally opting for a cesarean, but you may be able to find a hospital with a doctor who will attend a breach, or you may be able to drive somewhere where you can have that. But I think this is a very personal choice. Some families are not comfortable with a breach at home. Um, others are comfortable with a breach at home. So... Sometimes, though, you might get a surprise breach. And what do you do if you're looking at? So one, one clear sign that we have a breech baby coming is that you'll be pushing and then meconium will come out, which meconium is that first baby poo. And you'll just see meconium start coming out like, uh, like toothpaste from, from a toothpaste tube. Um, and it's kind of black and tarry, and that's a good sign. Of, a nice little pile of meconium means a breech baby, and you'll usually see the butt presenting first. So if a foot is coming down, it's important to watch for cord prolapse, and that's probably um, you need to transport. And again, it would be call the hospital and ask them to prep for an emergency cesarean. Um, and if the baby seems to, to stop coming, so the baby's belly button has appeared, baby's bum and belly button are there, but you haven't seen anything happen for several contractions or for five, five minutes, six minutes, seven minutes, then again, um, there could be a problem there. And it's, it's probably time to transport and call ahead to the hospital, let them know what's going on. Now, generally, if a midwife attends a breach, she often wants to have 
other experienced midwives there. So this is one where you're really going to dialogue with your care provider and ask her, is this a situation that you're comfortable with? You need to do some soul searching and decide, is this a situation that I'm comfortable with? And she may want a couple, not, not apprentices, but other midwives there. Um, but generally, the, the rule of thumb is hands off the breech. And I'll see, there's a nice breech birth um, on YouTube. And I'll see maybe if I can find that video. And you see, basically, you see the midwives really staying um, hands off the breech throughout the video. And then at the very end, as they're kind of waiting for the baby's head to be born, you see the midwife reach over and kind of lift up the mom's bum cheeks so that, and it just, it really kind of, you see the baby's head just really kind of come out after that. So they never touch the baby, um, but, and that's the rule of thumb is because the baby knows what he or she needs to do. Again, if you study in any obstetrics textbook or midwifery textbook, you'll see the cardinal movements of labor for a breech variation. Because the breech baby goes through particular things too. So again, um, there are there are different things that you can do. And one of the things that I'm going to give you on the show notes page for this uh, is the opportunity to download some sheets which are based on um, Dr. White's emergency childbirth. Actually, I've got it so that you can download the whole book. But these are some sheets that were put together by a mom that can be printed and kept nearby you. And there's kind of some step-by-step procedures on what to do um, what to do if you feel like baby's not coming or the baby's been born to the navel and doesn't seem to be coming anymore, what should you do? And I find I find it interesting to look at these things um, and to consider them, especially and I, because we, we keep livestock, we have goats, and sometimes there are malpresentations where, where you need to reach in and help reposition. And so it's interesting to me that any livestock handbook, livestock guide for a handler talks about how to handle these situations. But when and when we talk about human babies, obviously the cost is much greater with a human baby. But, um, but you know, we're very afraid to do those, to do those things or to think about those things. And so this sheet just goes over some things to do. And again, like I said, I feel like a breech baby is something that you really need to do some soul searching for. You really need to decide, is this something that I'm comfortable with birthing at home? And if not, then birth your baby at the hospital. Do understand that if you birth your baby at the hospital um, with a breech baby, you're likely going to get a cesarean. But if that's what you feel comfortable with, then I think that's okay. I know people are always like, well, what would you do, Kristen? And I think at this point, if I knew a baby was coming breech, I would really ask my midwife, could we have the baby at home? Unless the baby seemed to be like, um, there's a position called a stargazer where the baby's head is like looking straight up which I'm doing right now, which is why my voice changed. Um, So there are some other positions that it's a little bit harder to birth a breech baby in, and you would probably want to have an ultrasound to know what position your baby was in. Um, The same thing with twins, if you're having twins, and we won't really even go into twins, but if you've got the first twin is head down and the second is breech, often it's safe to have a vaginal birth. So that could be a time when ultrasound could be a good tool to help you really figure out what's going on. And of course, there are things you can do before birthing to help encourage your baby to spin. Sometimes babies are breached for a purpose. They have wisdom that we don't know about, um, and those babies won't spin, but sometimes they will. So there are options for that, and we could actually do a complete podcast about that or jump on the mama baby birthing call and ask me about that at some point. Another thing that that can be a concern is baby in distress. And we already talked about this when we talked about transporting, so I'm not going to talk about it again. But if the baby is born and the baby is not breathing, um, remember first that it's normal sometimes for the baby to take a minute to get started. And sometimes babies need a little bit of stimulation. So rubbing the baby's feet, rubbing his or her back can be good. If your baby seems to have a lot of stuff in his or her mouth, you can kind of suck that out and then spit it out. Or you can turn your baby to the side and rub her back so that so the baby's on the side across your arm or laying across your arm, belly to your arm. That's called postural drainage. And, um, and you can actually angle your arm downward so that the baby's head is downward. Ideally, you want to do this at the level of the umbilical cord so that the baby's not higher than the cord because remember, the cord is still bringing oxygen and blood to the baby. 
But again, so holding face down, off to the side, rubbing your hand up and down the baby's spine, um, rubbing the feet, um, slapping the bottoms of the feet can be helpful. We don't like do the spanking and the hanging babies upside down like you see in old-fashioned films, but but giving the baby some stimulation, talking to the baby, encouraging the baby, often that's what's needed for um, for your baby to get started. Now, if your baby is born really pale blue or white, it's normal for babies to be a little bit purpley. The oxygen saturation in the womb is only about 60%, but they usually do start pinking up very quickly. So if you're seeing a really pale blue or white, your baby's really limp. There's no tone. Tone means that they have that kind of they're kind of flexed like little frogs, like you picture a newborn baby being. So if they're totally limp, if you don't see any facial expressions or grimaces, those can be signs for concern. You want to give that baby some stimulation. Um, if baby is not doing anything and you you have your midwife there, then that's when she's going to step in. She's probably going to um, administer um, positive pressure ventilation. Your midwife should be certified in neonatal resuscitation. So she'll probably have a little tiny bag and mask, which she uses to administer positive pressure ventilation. If the midwife is not there or the equipment is not there for a reason, then mouth to mouth can be done. And you cover the baby's mouth and nose using only air from the cheeks. You don't you don't breathe from the lungs. If, For instance, if you were to do this, like had an emergency birth or something with baby not seeming to breathe, because you don't want to overinflate the lungs. So just what air you can hold in your cheeks and then puff that into the baby's mouth. Um, and again, the sheets that I have have, have a few steps to go with. Um, usually, if a baby's having trouble breathing, it's almost always respiratory. It's not cardiac. And so ventilating, giving the baby breaths, breathing for the baby is what's going to be most effective. And that's what NRP or neonatal resuscitation is focused on today for the most part. Um, and another thing that you should know is that breathing for the baby doesn't hurt the baby. So don't hesitate to do it because you're afraid of hurting the baby because they need air. They want that air. So again, this is a situation that, um, that can be dealt with and helped at home. Um, and then sometimes you may, the baby may need transport. There may be something going on. Perhaps the baby had a defect um, that we didn't know about or something like that. So if the baby doesn't come around right away and requires, you know, an intensive resuscitation, certainly that baby's going to be transported. But most babies, even if they seem a little bit like stunned at birth, sometimes babies are a little stunned like, whoa, what just happened? <clears throat> Rubbing the feet or the back, that postural drainage will get them going. Now also, again, bleeding is something that many, 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 many women worry about. And it is one that I feel like can be prevented for most moms. Sometimes a postpartum hemorrhage can happen for no good reason. But I think often it is iatrogenically caused. It's caused by horrible diet recommendations, which means that moms don't have expanded blood supplies and their uteruses or uteri are not healthy. And then I also think that completely interrupting the hormonal flow of birth by scaring women out of their wits, getting adrenaline racing, lights, camera, action, all that ridiculous nonsense going on in the birthing room that totally ruins the hormonal flow of labor, and induction, augmentation with Pitocin or Syntocin on, all those artificial hormones that completely take offline a woman's normal system, all of those things just totally wreck the safety mechanisms built into birth. And they leave a woman open to bleeding. Even the way that postpartum is handled, where there's like jerking on the cord and Pitocin and what they call active management of the third stage of labor, which is in, in theory supposed to prevent hemorrhages, I think a lot of times makes things worse. Now, if you've had a completely medically managed labor, um, Rachel Reed says that it's probably better to go with this actively managed third stage. But if, and I can I can link my articles on postpartum hemorrhage too, so just so that you know you'll you'll get an idea of what I'm talking about in more depth. But if you respect the hormonal flow of labor, then respecting the natural process of the, of the third stage is also much, much better. So, um, again, um, 
what we want to do is is prevent as much as possible. Good diet, good hormonal flow. Right after birth, baby should be with mom. No hat on baby so that mom's able to nuzzle baby's skin, to smell baby, to feel baby, to look at baby. Um, let those oxytocin levels get as high as possible. Keep the room dark. Keep the room quiet. Keep mom and baby warm. Not lots of craziness going on. That That's what's going to help mom and baby the most. Um so if a postpartum hemorrhage seems to be happening, um, it's really good to, like if before the placenta is out, is to try and get the placenta out. So really push, really work to get it out. After the placenta comes, um, one thing that is a a traditional remedy for postpartum hemorrhage is eating a piece of the placenta. As I talked about in the previous podcast on should you eat your placenta and my opinions on it, I'm not a fan of eating the placenta um, personally, but I think that this might be a time when you might try it. There are some other things that I might try first, but certainly if you were open to that and wanted to do that, that can work. Um, have somebody examine the placenta to see if there are retained pieces of placenta. I heard about a mom recently who started hemorrhaging three or four hours after birth, and when looking at her placenta, they saw that there were pieces missing, so there was retained placenta. That can keep the uterus from, from clamping down the way it's supposed to be. Um, so nursing or nipple stimulation, fundal massage, um, basically what you want to do is rub up a contraction and these sheets that I'm going to give you to to be able to download on the show notes page I actually have a picture of what you can do to kind of hold the uterus to to rub up a contraction getting your hands in there it's not comfortable for mom but it can really work um, those are all things to do good things to do um, getting the mom some fluids, some sugar, those sorts of things are really good to do. If the, if the placenta hasn't come, don't tug or pull on the cord. But basically what you want to do is you just want to rub up a contraction. You want to get that bleeding started, stopped. You want to get that uterus clamping down. If the mom hasn't peed in a while, getting her onto the toilet to pee can often um, help because the bladder being full can prevent the uterus from contracting. If a mom can't pee, then often she can be, a catheter can be put in, even at home. Many home birth midwives carry like a small, um, actually child-sized catheter, but it's effective because again, emptying the bladder can help stop a hemorrhage. And midwives often carry herbs and other remedies. Some midwives carry Pitocin or misoprostol to help stop a hemorrhage and there's debate on that but I think that if one has tried everything and the mom is still bleeding then giving a shot of Pitocin um, is is a good idea so and I've, I've I had to research this for a project for my midwifery school or for you know an intensive for my midwifery school and that's that's kind of how I felt about it so that's my thoughts and again this these are all things that you can talk about with your care provider and ask her what do you do if these situations come up but these are those are kind of like the big things and I know this has been this is a heavy topic this is a hard topic to talk about but I think that we need to talk about it and like I said I've got a lot of resources on that relate to the preamble on technology and birth and how that impacts birth um, I've got articles on postpartum hemorrhage and those sorts of things on dealing with a long labor so I will link to these because there are many many resources for this and again if you if you want to feel like you're completely prepared for your birthing that you've taken the time in pregnancy to do what you need to do that you feel empowered and strong and confident my mama baby birthing classes are designed to help you do that. And if you've got things unique to your situation that you want to talk over with somebody, I'm happy to do that too. So again, those are mama baby birthing classes, M-A-M-A, babybirthing.com. Definitely check out um, the show notes for this week's podcast so that you can look at all those things, so that you can download um, the emergency childbirth and also the emergency delivery sheets to have printed if that makes you feel better. I never have printed them, but I think that they were really nicely put together and some moms really do like those, especially if they're planning an unassisted birth. So again, um, those resources will be there for you on the show notes page. So check that out. And I would I would love to see you in the Mama Baby Birthing classes next week. So check those out. Mama Baby Birthing, M-A-M-A, babybirthing.com. And with that, I will talk to you next week and hope that you have a blessed week. 
Thanks for listening to the Birth, Baby and Life podcast with Kristen Burgess. For great resources and tons more info, visit www.birthbabylife.com. Visit www.birthbabylife.com.